Hello and welcome back to the Killer Kind Podcast. It's your host, Stephanie Miller, as always. Happy October, everyone. Happy spooky season. This is my favorite time of the year. I feel like I've said this numerous times, so you know that if you've been listening to this podcast for any length of time. Halloween cases are some of my favorite cases to cover, but also some of the hardest because of just how scary they actually are. Especially today's case. Three young roommates finish handing out candy to kids in their neighborhood a very wholesome night that turns into their absolute worst nightmare. Let's dive into the shocking Halloween murder of Adrian and Sonia and Leslie Mazzara. Halloween night 2004 in picturesque Napa Valley, California was just like any other Halloween. Adults were handing out candy. All the kids were dressed up. Spider-Man, SpongeBob, witches, and vampires were all popular Halloween costumes that year. And Napa was just a beautiful place to live and was always considered a very safe place to raise a family. That was until this particular Halloween night. Three roommates in their mid-twenties, Leslie Mazzara, Adrian and Sonia, and Lauren Mianza shared a two-story home on Dorset Street. And like I said, they had spent the night handing out candy to the little kids in the neighborhood. And then at around 10 p.m. that night, they started to sort of wind down. And by 11 p.m., Leslie and Adrian were in their upstairs bedrooms, and Lauren was in hers on the downstairs, the main level. By midnight, everyone was sound asleep. At 2 a.m., Lauren woke up to see that their security light was on, and she could hear her dog barking. She said she didn't think much of it because Adrian had a few cats, so she was thinking it was probably one of them just roaming around. A few minutes later, though, Lauren heard someone walking up the stairs inside the home. Again, she wasn't concerned because she thought it was Leslie's boyfriend who came over late at night often, which he had just done a couple nights prior. She recalled being annoyed that he was coming over as late as he was because they had a history of sort of waking up the house when he would come over. But Lauren didn't want to say anything just to keep the peace, so she basically rolls back over and tries to go back to sleep. That was until she heard a horrifying scream coming from her roommate, Adrian, upstairs. She could hear her screaming for help, so Lauren said she got up and she peeked out her bedroom door to see if she could tell what was going on, and a few seconds later, she saw a man running down the stairs, and she knew he was likely going to come find her. So she ran out the back door and hid in the backyard until she knew the man was gone. She said she saw him walking around the main level of the home and looking around. She felt he was definitely looking for her. But luckily, the man left and never found her. Once she realized the man was gone, she could still hear Adrian's cries for help. So she made her way back inside the home and up the stairs. And what she saw was brutal. Her two roommates were lying next to each other covered in blood. 
Leslie was lying face down on a pile of clothing and covered in what appeared to be stab wounds, and she wasn't moving. Adrian's eyes were open, and she was breathing, trying to speak. She said she knew her friend was alive, but she could also tell that she really wasn't there when looking into her eyes. She immediately ran back downstairs and called 911. Police and paramedics arrived at the scene and quickly determined that both Leslie and Adrian were deceased. Homicide detective Kirk Primo didn't want to disturb the crime scene when he got there, so instead of going up the stairs to the second floor, he used a ladder to peer inside Adrian's bedroom window, and he said there was so much blood, more than he's ever seen at a crime scene. A female officer that observed the scene as well had to leave the house because it made her physically sick. When searching the property for clues, they were able to determine that the intruder accessed the home through a slide-up window at the front of the house. A fiber was found inside the window as well as a blood smear on the window frame, both of which were sent for testing. Investigators were assuming both belonged to the attacker. Detective Primo also found some recently used cigarette butts outside as well. He said they didn't appear to be weathered or anything, so he knew they had been used at least that night. So they bagged that up for evidence as well. Now, while inside the house evaluating the crime scene, investigators said it appeared that Leslie was the main point of attack, meaning she appeared to be the initial target. They said it looked like Leslie was attacked in her bed while she was sleeping, and then she fought off her attacker and ran into Adrian's room, and that's when Adrian woke up and both women were attacked and killed. So with this theory, they knew they needed a start with those close to Leslie. And with that said, let's talk about these two beautiful young women. Leslie Ann Mazzara was born on August 1st, 1978. She grew up in a small town of Anderson, South Carolina. Leslie grew up competing in beauty pageants, and she won several pageants she competed in. In 2002, she was crowned Miss Williamston and competed for Miss South Carolina in July of that same year. She was gorgeous, but she was also very smart. She graduated from the University of Georgia in 2003 with a degree in philosophy. While in college, she also played on the lacrosse team and was a member of the karate club. After graduating college, she worked temporarily as a paralegal for the county prosecutor and actually helped pass Stephanie's Law in 2003, which helped track down people with repeated allegations of child abuse. In 2002, she helped raise money with a sit-a-thon at the Anderson Mall in her hometown, where shoppers donated to help build a cottage for abused and neglected children at the Calvary Home. This girl was awesome. (laughs) The Williamson mayor said she was the epitome of charm and poise. She was an advocate for the defenseless, and he said that's why it's one tragic irony that she was a victim at another's hand. 
In March 2004, she moved to Napa Valley, a.k.a. wine country. She started a job and quickly excelled as a concierge, tour guide, and sales associate at a pretty popular winery in the area. Her co-workers loved her as well as anyone who visited the winery. When she was killed, her co-worker said it wasn't just like losing a co-worker. It was like losing a personal friend. Leslie was also known as the social one of her three roommates. Lauren described her as very spunky, warm, and everyone was drawn to her. And since she was so pretty, she had a number of guys dying for her attention. She had multiple men interested in her, including her boyfriend, of course. But, of course, all three roommates combined had a large group of friends as well as admirers. Adrian Michelle Insania was born on December 30th, 1977, and she was quite the opposite of her friend and roommate Leslie. Adrian had been through a lot. Her parents had split up when she was very young, and she was involved in a horrible car accident when she was just 16. The car actually flipped multiple times, and Adrian had to have plastic surgery to completely reconstruct her face. But she came out of that horrible experience and she excelled the remaining years in high school. She went on to take advanced classes while playing volleyball and softball at the same time. She ended up graduating college in 2001 from Cal Poly San Luis Obispo with a degree in civil engineering. And she got a job as an engineer in the Napa Valley area. Her co-workers were impressed with her self-assurance and self-confidence and her ability to gain respect in this sort of male-dominated career. She was a very smart and strong person throughout her entire life. That's one thing she and Leslie definitely had in common. But their personalities were described as being pretty different. <laughs> Lauren described Adrian as much more mellow than Leslie. But despite their different personalities, all three girls grew super close and, like I mentioned earlier, combined, they had a great social life, a large group of friends, and were all just so easy to get along with. But they were also very confident and strong, career-driven, and hard-working women, too. They were really the perfect roommates. So who could have done this? Who would have attacked these poor girls like this and why? Well, the results from the blood found on the window frame came back and it didn't match anyone in particular. All they could determine was that it belonged to a white male of Northern European descent. Now, saying it didn't match anyone in particular only means Whoever committed this heinous crime hadn't been to jail before. So since they believed that Leslie was the intended target, they started with those men closest to her. At the time of the murder, she had been dating two men. One of the men had recently come to the house, as I mentioned earlier that Lauren had talked about, and he actually saw flowers from the other man. Now, when I say that she was dating two guys, she wasn't in like a serious relationship with both of these men. She was sort of seeing them both, kind of had tried to have a serious relationship with one of them, and it just was kind of off and on. But 
just keep in mind, she was casually dating both of these guys. Close friends from college, Katie Norris and Vanessa Schnorr, visited Leslie in Napa just three weeks before the murder. And they were out one night with this one guy that Leslie had been seeing. And they said a male friend of Leslie's came up to them at some point and just said, hey, like, how's it going? And her friend noticed a drastic change in this guy's attitude. Katie and Vanessa said that after the murder, they racked their brains thinking of all the people they had met while with Leslie, thinking who could have done this. And they both immediately landed on this guy that she had been seeing. Katie actually called the Napa police and spoke to the detective on the case about their trip and about this interaction. So obviously, investigators tracked this guy down. And although suspicious, his DNA did not match the DNA found at the scene. So, after ruling him out, they switched their attention to the last guy Leslie had been in a close relationship with, a guy named William Lee Youngblood Jr., a lawyer who she knew back in South Carolina. They had been living together shortly before she moved to Napa, and the two had broken up, and largely because of Lee's dad. According to Leslie's friend Amy, she said that she could honestly marry Lee, but his dad just made her too uncomfortable. William Youngblood Sr. would call the house to talk to Leslie, not to his son, quite often. She said it got to the point where she would stop answering the phone. Her friend said they felt the father was obsessed with Leslie. Amy was actually questioned by Napa police about William Sr., and after pulling Leslie's phone records, they asked her, quote, what if I told you that William Sr. called Leslie's phone twice that night on Halloween? How would that make you feel? And Amy said she got chills immediately. Investigators actually flew to South Carolina to interview the Youngbloods, William Sr. said the calls on Halloween night were just an unfortunate coincidence and denied any involvement in the murders and also denied his infatuation with Leslie. Both William Youngblood Sr. and his son agreed to provide a DNA sample and neither of the two were a match. So coming up empty-handed with the men in Leslie's life, investigators turned their focus to those in Adrian's life. At the time, Adrian did have an on-again, off-again boyfriend, Christian Lee. Her friend and co-worker Lily Prudham said she had come into work a couple of times crying over her relationship. She said there towards the end, they only saw the negative side of Christian. With this information, a few detectives on the case paid Christian a visit at his home. <laughs> Christian said he woke up to about five detectives pounding on his door. And when he opened the door, they all kind of took a step back, asking if he had any weapons on him or inside the home. He said he had a knife and said he could go get it and show it to him. But they immediately said, no, 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 just point to where it's at, and we'll get it. He said he was very cooperative, and they took a sample of his blood, some clothes that he had had, and the sheets off his bed. 
Then they asked him to come down to the station for questioning. But after interviewing him and testing his DNA, yet again, detectives reached a dead end and he was cleared as a possible suspect. A $100,000 reward was announced to the public to anyone with information about the murder of Leslie Mazzara and Adrian and Sonia, but months went by with no leads. Adrian's close friend Lily that I mentioned had been engaged to a man named Eric Koppel, and the two had originally planned to get married on that November 1st. It's sad because Lily said that had they not canceled the wedding or kind of postponed it, then Lauren and Adrian would have been in Hawaii at the time of the murder. But since her best friend's death, she realized quickly life was too short. So she and Eric decided to get married. They had a beautiful wedding, and they actually asked Adrian's mom, Arlene, to be part of the ceremony. So she read scripture for the couple. In Adrian's favorite song at the time, She Will Be Loved by Maroon 5, was played in her honor during the reception. It was a joyful day for the young couple, but also a tough one because the bride was missing one of her bridesmaids and best friend. Investigators said they interviewed over 1,000 people and took DNA samples from 200 men. And they were obviously baffled that they hadn't found the killer yet because they were certain that it was somebody they that knew Leslie or at least knew the girls in some way. They really didn't think that this could just be some sort of random attack for seemingly no reason at all. Well, it takes 11 long months for there to be a break in the case. See, you remember those cigarette butts that I mentioned earlier? Well, it took 11 months to get DNA results back on those, and it confirmed that those cigarette butts matched the DNA from the blood found on the window frame. So, police decide to release the type of cigarettes they found in the yard with the killer's DNA on it to the public. They were Camel Turkish Gold cigarettes. And releasing that information worked. It broke this case wide open. Two days after this information was released, two parents received suicide letters from their son, admitting to committing a crime that was only punishable by death. He said, quote, I am leaving this life because I know the consequences of my actions must be faced. And they spell death. I will not grant the government the satisfaction of watching me die. So I will end my life in the place and manner of my choosing. I do not consider it a suicide. I call it justice. This man's parents who received the suicide letters immediately rushed to their son's side and stopped him from committing suicide. And thankfully, they were able to convince him to turn himself in. And when I tell you, you aren't going to believe who did it, I mean it. This one came out of left field. I think I verbally gasped when I found out who it was and like how he was involved. So who was it that came forward confessing to the murder of Adrian and Leslie? 
none other than Eric Koppel. Adrian's best friend, Lily's then fiance, now husband, the man who stood there at the altar with his wife, listening to Adrian's mother bless their wedding. I can't. (laughs) I cannot wrap my head around that. When Arlene got the call, she said she was so heartbroken. She was confused, obviously. She said she had just as much grief finding out who the killer was as she did when she found out her daughter had been murdered. And that's pretty bad. But how did they miss him? How was Eric not on their radar? He's the boyfriend of the best friend. They got DNA samples from 200 men, and they didn't think to include Eric. That was a huge miss by the investigators. In January 2007, Eric Koppel took a plea deal, opting out of a trial. Both families negotiated with the defense and the prosecutors to take the death penalty off the table. Adrian's mom said the death penalty option gives them so many more times to appeal, and she did not want there to be a chance at all that he could get out. With that said, he was given two life sentences without the possibility of parole. During the sentencing, Eric was able to give a statement. He said, I cannot fathom an explanation for my sinful deeds. The terrible agony inflicted upon a great number of people. My relationship with Lily was in jeopardy and crashing. It was also like it fertilized the seed of anger in my heart. There was rage inside of me. If I had only listened to those who pleaded with me to get the help I needed. He also admitted to trying to cope with his depression at the time by abusing alcohol. And he said it only made it worse. Obviously. Eric's wife and Adrian's best friend, Lily, spoke as well. She admitted to grieving with Adrian's mother, but said that she knew a gentler Eric. A gentler Eric than the one that murdered her best friend. She publicly proclaimed support for her husband, going so far as to tell him that there was nothing in this world that you could do that would make me love you less. I don't know how to feel about that. (laughs) I mean, yes, he's your husband, but he murdered your best friend. Like, before you were even married. I I can't wrap my head around it. But what bothered me more was that she said that after the murders, he acted totally fine. He was completely normal. It wasn't until around the time that they released the evidence they had of the Turkish camel gold, whatever kind of cigarettes those were to the public that the pressure was on. And he actually started to seem like something was wrong. Eric did also apologize as well to both of the families involved. He even cried at one point. He blamed the murders on the death of his grandfather, which sent him into a depression Again, along with the alcohol he was using in an attempt to cope with the depression, he said he was going to kill himself, but decided against it and decided to turn himself in so that the family could have closure 
to the case. Lily herself said that Eric killed because of his depression, but despite her claim that he could do nothing to change her love for him, she did later divorce him. However, she has still kept his last name. But the real question is, why did, why did Eric kill these two women? Was it depression? Was it the alcohol? I don't buy it, to be honest. I mean, why Leslie and Adrian? Two close people in his fiance's life. Why? The Napa police have never publicly stated a motive for the murders. And it was not a coincidence that November 1st, 2004, was the date that he and Lily had initially planned to get married and she had backed out. Lily later said that she and Adrian would discuss their relationships with each other as girlfriends do. It's possible that Lily may have decided to call off the wedding after one of these discussions. And maybe she told Eric that, maybe not. But there were other theories as well that maybe Eric was jealous of Adrian and Lily's friendship. Or some have even speculated that Eric made a pass at Leslie and... Leslie might have said something to Lily or insinuated that she was going to. There's a few theories surrounding the why in this case because Eric was a very like shy guy. He was kind of like to himself, not really outgoing and friendly like Lily was and like the rest of these girls were. So it's not like he had much interaction with them, but we may never know the real story. However, a lot of the media have questioned Lily herself, wondering how could she have not known? How did she not figure out that her fiance and then husband was the one responsible? Was he really that good at hiding his emotions or did he have zero emotion at all? It just didn't make sense and doesn't add up to a lot of people. In a 48 Hours interview, she even said, the killer must have been acting strangely. How could it not be noticed? She also said that she hoped that Adrian had injured her killer. All the while, Eric Koppel was sitting right beside her. Had she not known? Had she not known that it was him? And that's why a lot of people are concerned that she probably did know something, or at least speculated and maybe didn't want to say anything but this whole case is frustrating the missed mark by the investigators and they were under some scrutiny by a lot of people about missing this guy because they were supposedly checking the inner circle yet they didn't question or interview the best friend's boyfriend doesn't add up but either way eric was caught and he remains behind bars where he is serving his two life sentences without the possibility of parole. The surviving roommate, Lauren, she actually left Napa, of course, and relocated to LA. She said she felt safer in a larger city where violence was the norm, which is so sad. And that is the first Halloween case of the season. 
What are your thoughts? Are you not like so frustrated like me still sitting here talking about this? I am beyond frustrated at the police, but also at Eric and then annoyed by Lily about seemingly supporting her murdering husband, even though it was her best friend. Literally hate that. Yes, they got a divorce eventually, but how could you possibly stand by him? Knowing it should freak you out more that he was so calm and normal and like nothing ever happened almost a year after the murder. That is disturbing and I would want nothing to do with that. But as always, I want to know your thoughts on today's case. So head over to the podcast Instagram at killer.kind.pod to leave a comment on today's episode post, letting me know your thoughts there. And then go ahead and send me a suggestion for the next Halloween case. And don't worry to those of you that requested the conspiracy theory episode that is coming. I am still working on that. I plan on putting that out at the end of this month. So be sure to stay tuned for that. But that'll do it for me this week, guys. I'll be back here in two weeks with a brand new Halloween episode for you. Until then, stay safe. Bye, guys.